There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. The Georgian Bay sits nestled against the northeastern side of the Great Lake, Lake Huron. It is a massive body of water, and long before Europeans ever arrived, it was a key part of an indigenous trade and transportation network stretching all the way to the St. Lawrence River. During the height of the fur trade, the route became one of the main ways by which the voyageurs brought furs from the interior to Montreal. By the 19th century, numerous people put forward the idea of canalizing this stretch of water. Sir John A. Macdonald, Canada's first Prime Minister, said that if you live to be as old as I am now, you will see a double track around Lake Superior together with a ship canal by Ottawa. Alexander Mackenzie, our country's second Prime Minister, said, I am perfectly satisfied that the Ottawa Valley presents the greatest facilities of any route upon the continent for the transportation of the products of the Northwest to the Atlantic Ocean. Sir Wilfrid Laurier, the seventh Prime Minister of Canada, said Canada's chief item of expenditure is in creating routes for her commerce. She has to complete her railway system and build the Georgian Bay Canal. And even... The New York Engineering News wrote, Had such a route existed in the United States, it would have been canalized years ago. Despite the views expressed here, the Georgian Bay Ship Canal was never built. The route was surveyed over a dozen times, and contracts were let for its construction, but little work was ever completed. The why to this story poses an interesting tale of infrastructure development in a young Canada. This is Season 6, Episode 16, The Canal That Never Was. Today's book recommendation, and in fact today's script, 
is written by author Ray Love. Ray Love is a retired educator living in Muskoka, Ontario, and writes about the history of Muskoka and the Georgian Bay. He enjoys a family camp on the French River where he first learned of the history of the Georgian Bay Ship Canal. And so today's book recommendation is his book titled The Georgian Bay Ship Canal, Canada's Abandoned National Dream. It will come out with Friesen Press in June of 2021. The idea of a canal following the route of the voyageurs of the fur trade captured the imagination of Canadians for centuries. In the political sphere, it was discussed and debated numerous times in the parliaments of the combined Canadas and the Dominion of Canada. These debates lasted two years shy of a century before the idea was finally put to rest on May 1, 1927, by a vote in the House of Commons. This canal scheme was one of numerous ideas put forward to create a shipping lane to join the largest reservoir of fresh water on the planet, the Great Lakes, to the Atlantic Ocean. Although the Great Lakes are essentially one large river flowing from Lake Superior to the Atlantic, there were several obstacles to a southerly shipping route. The two most glaring of these were Niagara Falls and the Lachine Rapids. The northern route from Georgian Bay along the French River and Lake Nipissing down the Mattawa and Ottawa Rivers to the St. Lawrence was seen as a legitimate alternative. Many saw this as a parallel to the European transportation network which connected the Black and Mediterranean seas with the Atlantic Ocean. The ultimate prize, of course, was ease of access to mineral resources and grains from the interior of the North American continent. At various times, the idea was courted by British industrialists who seemed more than eager to build it. Boards of trade in the cities of Montreal, Ottawa, North Bay, and Port Arthur set up numerous delegations to lobby for it. The who's who of Canadian politics and business from the early 1800s to 1927 had a say in its promotion, yet it was never built. Was it a bad idea? No. It was commendable in many ways. Was it a failure? No, more a missed opportunity for Canadian national and international financial success. In one sense, the demise of the project was a blessing for the ecological health of the waterways involved. Little did early shipping interests know of the possibility of invasive species from foreign seas wreaking havoc with the Great Lakes ecosystem. The very term ecosystem did not grace the pages of a dictionary until coined by Oxford ecologist Arthur Transley in 1935. The canal was a true enigma, as in times of unbridled enthusiasm for new public works in Canada, it never saw the bucket of a steam shovel. The project had many names over the years, including the Montreal and Lake Huron Canal, the Champlain Ship Canal, the Ottawa Waterway, the Montreal-Ottawa and Georgian Bay Canal, and simply the Georgian Bay Ship Canal. 
Now, the route of the proposed ship canal closely followed the indigenous trade routes established many centuries before the arrival of Europeans. At the time of European contact, the three indigenous groups who inhabited the area encompassing the route were the Algonquin, Nipissing, and Ottawa, all tribes speaking a version of the Algonquin dialect. All three tribes were Ojibwe in heritage and today call themselves Anishinaabek or the people. These tribes were active traders. As an example, the Nipissing traded as far west as Lake Nipigon, north to Hudson's Bay, south into Wendat Territory in southern Georgian Bay, and east into Quebec. They traded dried pickerel, considered a delicacy, and furs for corn, tobacco, and fishing nets, amongst other products. They also traded for flint and red ochre. Some of the furs traded made their way to Tadoussac at the mouth of the Saguenay River. Here, there was a large indigenous fur trading market. The earliest Europeans to arrive in the area of the Georgian Bay were fur traders. The burgeoning fur trade was financed by Scottish, English, and American businessmen headquartered in Montreal. Eventually, a number of these independent companies formed a loose collection of traders called the Northwest Company. Principal amongst these men were the Scots Simon McTavish and the famous explorer Alexander Mackenzie. These men sought new and better sources of furs in what are now the Prairie Provinces and the Northwest Territories. They sought to establish a supply chain that stretched from Montreal to Fort William, modern-day Thunder Bay, and again to Fort Chippewan on Lake Athabasca in the northern corners of Alberta and Saskatchewan. The volume of furs they harvested was astonishing. In the summer of 1798, there were delivered 106,000 beaver skins, 32,000 martin skins, 1,800 mink skins, and 40,000 skins of a dozen varieties. The bulk of these skins were transported to Montreal via the Ottawa Waterway, essentially the same route as the future proposed Georgian Bay Ship Canal. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As early as the mid-19th century, people recognized the potential of a canal route in the region. Charles P. Treadwell, Ottawa Valley native and sheriff of the combined counties of Prescott and Russell, put together a book entitled Arguments in Favor of the Ottawa and Georgian Bay Ship Canal. This was written in 1855 and published in 1856. It was a compilation of letters to politicians, 
Newspaper articles, reports from the captains of steamships plying the Ottawa River, and findings of various river surveys. It was produced to lobby the government, the combined Canadas, to build the canal. Clearly, it was intended to improve the business fortunes of the citizens of Ottawa, who were in competition with Toronto for commercial and industrial supremacy in emerging Canada West, future Ontario. Many in the Ottawa Valley region felt ignored by governments during the railway building craze in British North America during this same period, and charged that politicians were favoring the southern portion of Canada West. For instance, in 1846, canals had been built on the St. Lawrence River and at Welland, which allowed through traffic from the upper Great Lakes to the St. Lawrence River. Most of this traffic, Treadwell argued, even that carried by Canadian ships, was being funneled through Buffalo via railway or along the Erie Canal to New York. This had actually hurt the shipping business along the Ottawa River and even in Montreal. The residents of these cities wanted their own waterway to attract shipping from the upper Great Lakes. Treadwell's work began a series of arguments in favor of the route, which would be repeated in various forms added to and refined for the next 75 years. The most salient point was the distance saved along the Georgian Bay route. So if we start with Chicago, the chief transshipment hub for products of the American Midwest to Montreal, so Chicago to Montreal, Canada's busiest port. It was 2,703 kilometers along the St. Lawrence route. This distance was shortened to 1,562 kilometers along the proposed Georgian Bay Canal route. The calculations of the day indicated a saving on shipping of 54 cents per bushel of wheat using the Georgian Bay route. As well, if freight was diverted at Buffalo to sail from New York, the distance and cost was increased yet again. So simply put, the Georgian Bay Canal route was shorter, which made shipping cheaper. Now Treadwell also points out that the Georgian Bay route was a red, quote-unquote, red, or all-Canadian route, which was strategically important in case of armed conflict with the United States. And the threat of such a conflict was ever-present, up until pretty much 1871, with the signing of the Treaty of Washington. In the aftermath of Treadwell's publication, a series of surveys of the route were carried out, reported favorably, on the possibility of the canal in the 1860s, but still nothing happened. The newly formed government of the Dominion of Canada, so that is the nation of Canada created in 1867, examined its public works projects in 1870 and developed a list of works to be considered. First on the list was the Welland Canal on the Niagara Peninsula. Ninth on that list was the Georgian Bay Canal. Now, the political issue was pretty simple. 
there were many, many more votes to be had in southern Ontario than elsewhere in the new province. The project was thus put on the back burner once again. Fast forward to 1894, when lobbying for the canal was led by the highly energetic and somewhat mentally unstable former mayor of Ottawa, McLeod Stewart. Stewart formed the Montreal, Ottawa, and Georgian Bay Canal Company in 1894 and received a charter to build the canal, but was stonewalled by Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier two years later. Laurier continually found reasons to thwart the building of the canal, including inadequate plans, the enormous expense of the undertaking, and the fact that his government did not have adequate funding to support the work. Laurier was also a liberal, and Stewart was an ardent conservative supporter. Stewart was also temporarily sidelined in his lobbying efforts by a visit to the asylum in Verdun. The businessmen of Montreal, Ottawa, and towns in eastern and northern Ontario would not let Laurier rest. They continually lobbied through boards of trade, pamphlets, newspapers, and their elected representatives to get the canal built. Laurier actually promised them the canal in 1904, and he promised them the canal again in 1908, both, of course, election years. Instead, Laurier focused on building a second transcontinental railway, the Canadian Northern, and then building a third railway, the National Transcontinental. Folks, I just want to take a second to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So if you want to donate, let's say, five bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. You see, we survive exclusively on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page, Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy and thank you to everyone who has donated. We could not keep doing this without you. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Even though Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier seemed to be against the canal project, he did take some action by authorizing a complete engineering study of the route. The tidy sum of $250,000 was put towards this task of a complete survey, which eventually cost about $694,000 and took a full four years to complete. However, when completed, it was considered one of the finest engineering reports of its day. The survey looked at absolutely every angle of the route, including the history of the region, past surveys, current and future economic development, 
and the history of the canal company itself, the effects of the proposed work on lumbering along the Ottawa River, and flooding of properties created by dams were even considered. In the physical sphere, information was collected on hydraulic characteristics of the rivers, the climate of each main section including rainfall, snowfall, and evaporation data, watershed information including the size and depth of water bodies and currents, plus an analysis of rock and sediment borings. In the engineering realm, research focused on the locations and dimensions of dams and canals with detailed drawings of 45 dams, 27 locks, and 13 bridges to be built along with the 16 existing bridges on the route. The locations, horsepower, and uses of hydro dams were noted. The details of the locks and their operations were carefully sketched and described, and comparisons were made with locks around the world. As a part of the venture, two of the survey engineers were sent to Panama to view the engineering work of the Panama Canal. The initial survey was designed to use hydropower to power locks and to provide lighting along the route for nighttime travel. There were an estimated 10 power dams along the route, and the potential to produce 1 million horsepower of electrical power. Trade statistics were sought and published for goods being shipped along the Great Lakes waterways. These reports showed that 80% of Canadian grain was destined for Britain, with Germany the second largest importer. They also showed that 32% of Canadian grain was carried in American ships and exited through Buffalo and the Erie Canal. The many mineral discoveries within close proximity to the route were highlighted, including silver at Cobalt, copper at Temagami, nickel and copper at Sudbury, and iron ore at Atacokan. This, coupled with iron ore from Lake Superior and Quebec, could greatly enhance Canada's steel industry. The report on the survey was presented in the House of Commons in 1909 and received favorable reviews. However, the cost of the work spooked Prime Minister Laurier. At an estimated $100 million, he was unsure that his government could proceed. He actually asked for another study into whether the canal was even economically feasible. After Robert Borden and the Conservative Party's victory in the 1911 federal election, lobbying, included that by Conservative McLeod Stewart, ramped up once again. In 1912, Borden did give a paltry sum of $100,000 towards the canal, but a year later apportioned $1.66 million towards improvements on the Welland Canal system. The First World War then erupted in 1914, and little was heard about the Georgian Bay Canal until 1926. Now in 1926, enter Clifford Sifton and his sons Winfield and Harry. The Siftons had purchased the canal charter in 1926, and they realized that with the canal charter, 
came the right to harness the hydroelectric potential of the rivers along the route. They hatched a plan to get the canal built without using any government funding. In this Sifton plan, the ever-expanding market for electricity in Ontario would provide the majority of the revenues necessary to complete the canal, with the remainder to be raised in the private market. Simply by developing all the hydropower sites along the canal as it was built, the project would, based on this plan, pay for itself. The government would thus be under no further financial obligation. All that was necessary was permission to proceed. As well, the company would be allowed to charge a $1 per ton toll on shipping on the canal for 10 years to recoup construction costs. And finally, power developed along the canal would be sold at a price determined by the federal government. This was problematic for Ontario Premier George Ferguson. Ferguson rejected this plan by denouncing it in the press and in the Ontario legislature. He argued that water power was owned by the provinces, as were other natural resources, and that a project which privately controlled the resources but was partnered with the federal government flew in the face of this constitutional reality. The canal plan was thus once again squashed. The defining moments of the canal bid came in 1927, when the canal company charter came up for its 13th renewal. The complete month of March of 1927 was spent by the House of Commons debating the private member's bill on whether to renew the charter or not. MPs from the Montreal and Ottawa areas, as well as northern Ontario, argued in favour of the bill. Members from other parts of the province, such as those cities along the Welland-St. Lawrence route, argued against it. The bill went to second reading before being sent to the Committee on Railways, Canals and Telephone Lines for further review. And despite a public address by the Siftons, the bill to renew the charter was defeated and the Georgian Bay Ship Canal was put to rest. The political power at that time remained in the population centres of southern Ontario, and this ultimately hurt the ability for the Georgian Bay Canal to be built. Now, other plans have been hatched over the years, arguing for the canalization of the natural waterway route that had been used long before Europeans ever set foot on the continent, but these have also been defeated. Perhaps the route will always remain just as it was. When Anishinaabek traders plied its waters, connecting the deep hinterland to the mighty St. Lawrence River. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.